Hi everyone, welcome back to the House Podcast, our exploration of the humanities beyond the curriculum. So we're not doing the bell jar yet, we will soon, but on account of the fact that I have not yet started my personal statement, oops, I am doing some desperate reading around to find the perfect thing to write about. And I stumbled upon the play by Tom Stoppard called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I'm, of course, very predictable. So seeing that it was based on Hamlet, I simply could not resist. And I'm so glad I didn't because this has turned out to be one of my favourite literary pieces, I suppose, ever. It was written in 1967, but I'm really not that bothered about the context, as you might have noticed. Jess is always the one doing that. So without further ado... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is based within the action of Hamlet. Obviously, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are both very minor characters in Hamlet. You know, refer to episode five of this podcast for more information regarding them. But they are really quite irrelevant, which is something that Stoppard consistently plays on. This is really interesting as Stoppard actively employs a lot of metatheatre to engage us with the main themes of the play or questions even which are ones surrounding free will and by extension absurdism with a little bit of existentialism attached. A lot of people comment that it is an absurdist play. And while I do agree that there are hints of absurdism, particularly in how it deals with theatre and death, there's a greater philosophical edge to it than just that. And I think that the play really effectively brings up a discussion of free will as opposed to being strictly absurdist. Maybe reaching for some intertextuality, I found that the first line of the play really sets the scene in being quite similar to the setting of No Exit, two Elizabethans passing the time in a place without any visible character. Again, this is referred to a little later with his attention being directed at his environment or lack of it. We can definitely see how this might be influenced by the empty room that Sartre's three protagonists are introduced to, so that definitely sets an undertone of existential questioning throughout the play. Equally, Neither Rosencrantz nor Guildenstern particularly remember how they have reached their current position as they are travelling to the castle of Denmark. They remember a messenger coming to them and sending them on their way. And that's all. And consistently throughout, they question what little memory they have of what has happened before this play. Of course, the main concept to talk about with this play is free will. And it starts on the very first page, even, with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern betting on a game of heads or tails. They seem to be stuck in a sort of limbo, as they are behind the scenes of the main action of Hamlet. However, something miraculous does happen, in that the coin has landed as heads 92 times in a row, which is a 1 in 5 octillion chance of happening. This introduces a regard for the absurdity of life which runs throughout the play, as Guildenstern ponders what exactly this means. The most interesting aspect of this is what the implications of this game are. 1. Probability is a factor which operates within natural forces. 2. Probability is not operating as a factor. 3. We are now within un, sub or supernatural forces. Discuss. If we postulate, and we just have, that within un, sub or supernatural forces, the probability is that the law of probability will not operate as a factor, then we must accept that the probability of the first part will not operate as a factor, in which case the law of probability will operate as a factor within un, sub or supernatural forces. And since it obviously hasn't been doing so, we can take it that we are not held within un, sub or supernatural forces after all, in all probability, that is. This game of chance 
brings up the pivotal question of determinism, which then extends to whether we have any accountability over our actions. Simply put, our actions could be dictated by the actions which come before them. This I found particularly intriguing as it links into behaviourism, which is the belief that everything we do is influenced by external factors, and even our thoughts and private actions should be regarded as ultimately not our own. For example, if I were to see a Cadbury's ad on a bus and then got some chocolate, my action would not be determined by my free will at all. In fact, we are very much influenced by the conditions which we are surrounded by or born into. You can argue that as we don't choose what place, time or class we are born into, we don't have any influence. You can link this particularly into Locke's theory of the tabula rasa, which is the belief that we are born with a blank slate. But if you think about it, although there might not be a single unified human nature which dictates what we do, our conditions do. So irrespective of that, we still have little control over our lives and how they span out for us, not consciously, but with how we develop along the way. I think this somewhat challenges existentialism, as Sartre is very insistent on the fact that we are born with free will and with a blank slate, and we only give it limitations to comfort ourselves. But it is hard to believe that we all have an equal playing field in terms of the purpose we build for ourselves. Existence might precede essence, but conditioning intervenes. Also, most prominently, this brings up the problem of causation. If everything has a cause, then we must be stuck in, basically, an endless link of causation, which again means that we don't have influence over any aspect of our lives. And Stoppard mentions this beautifully in this quote. Your smallest action sets off another somewhere else and is set off by it. Keep an eye open, an ear cocked, tread warily, follow instructions. We'll be all right. For how long? Till events have played themselves out. There's a logic at work. It's all done for you. Don't worry. Enjoy it. Relax. To be taken in hand and led like being a child again, even without the innocence. A child. It's like being given a prize, an extra slice of childhood when you least expect it, as a prize for being good, or a compensation for never having had one. I guess you could argue that causation does bring us comfort, as we can't really be held accountable for anything. And that sort of isn't related to to the coins, and I did go on for a bit, but this is Guildenstern then argues that our actions could sometimes be determined by chance. But even in that case, our actions are still dictated by something external to us, which leaves us again with no free will. And finally, his third point is that of the influence of the supernatural, which more accurately points out the absurdity of bad faith that Sartre comments on, in that our actions could be completely determined by God, so then we definitely don't have any free will. And of course, this is all brought up in the context of why the coin has landed on heads 92 times. This idea is something that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are both challenged with, and metatheatre becomes important in spreading this message, as they are both quite literally stuck in a play, and not even in this one, but just the events of the original Hamlet. The fact that this play was written in 1967 is quite relevant, as the language it uses is similar to our own in that it isn't overly complicated and it is sometimes colloquial too. But as we are guided through the world of the two background characters, the plot and the actual content of Hamlet is interwoven into Stoppard's play. We get moments where Hamlet, Claudius, Gertrude or Ophelia come on stage and they go on to speak in Shakespearean English, 
which creates a sense of dissonance and gives the play a disjointed notion. We go from normal English, essentially, to Shakespeare. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are just as confused as we are as they are flung into a different play and simply wait on the sidelines for their role to fulfil in Hamlet. This is a play of inaction, where they realise that they are stuck in a play and have no influence over its plot. Here, the title of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is important as it is a direct quote from the end of Hamlet, where the ambassador announces that they have been murdered, and this speech from him is actually the very last page of Stoppard's. Even in a play about themselves, they have no control over its plot. They are there as almost their own background characters, and they are conscious of it. We see in the movie particularly where they often just wait around for their next lines, and they ask themselves if the other has said anything because they just don't have anything to do with themselves outside of the main events of Hamlet. Regardless, we see elements of this meta-theatre everywhere as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern become more conscious of their roles, as Guildenstern examines the confines of the stage and can never leave them, or with the fact that each time the main character of Hamlet comes on stage, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern immediately freeze. There's quite an ironic moment where Rosencrantz becomes so overwhelmed of the fact that he doesn't ultimately matter he goes up to what he thinks is Gertrude the Queen and puts his hand over his eyes and says, guess who? But it turns out to be just an actor from the dumb show who is playing her. He has no influence at all and it begins to eat away at him, particularly about halfway through when he shouts, fire! To which Guildenstern says, where? Rosencrantz responds, it's all right, I'm demonstrating the misuse of free speech to prove that it exists. There's a desperation here to have influence and the question arises of whether free speech and our ability to express ourselves within the constraints of, I suppose, our body counts as free will. Because I might shout fire halfway through this podcast, but it would still have been influenced by me reading this play and so I'm not exercising any sense of autonomy in doing so. I'm just being conditioned to do so externally. This is explained again with a wonderful quote. Allowed, yes, we are not restricted, no boundaries have been defined, no inhibitions imposed. We have, for the while, secured or blundered into our release for the while. Spontaneity and whim are the order of the play. Other wheels are turning, but they are not our concern. We can breathe, we can relax, we can do what we like and say what we like to whomever we like, without restriction. Within limits, of course, certainly within limits. The juxtaposition of without restriction and within limits right after addresses the paradox of free will in that we can do what we like within the human condition which is ultimately defined by causation and also by our physical limitations. Moving on, a smaller and more humorous idea that is explored in the play is identity. Throughout the play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern don't know their own names and don't know which one is which. So funny, I know. But it is a genuine reference to Hamlet, where when they come to the castle, Hamlet confuses them. Gertrude and Claudius also do so later on. We as viewers ourselves are at times just as confused as to which one is which. When they introduce themselves to one of the actors that plays the dumb show, they say, My name is Guildenstern and this is Rosencrantz. I'm sorry, his name is Guildenstern and I'm Rosencrantz. At the end, we get an even deeper dive into this when Rosencrantz asks Guildenstern, 
Is that you? Yes. How do you know? I should probably clarify that this is all happening in the dark, but then Rosencrantz thinks that his leg is dead and pinches himself, only to realise that it's Guildenstern's leg. This might relate to Sartre's theory of judgment, in that we are only something if it is verified by another person. We can see that through Inez and Estelle in No Exit, but most importantly here, there is nothing which distinguishes the two characters in the eyes of the main characters of Hamlet, since they constantly confuse them. So, with our identities being based around the images we create in the eyes of those who aren't us, it is impossible for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to hold any sense of individuality. There's a sense here that the two are not only background characters to Hamlet, but also to their own lives. They fail to dictate anything about themselves, and are lost as a result. Anyway, that was just a slightly funny detail that I thought was important to mention. I guess it's funnier when you watch the movie instead of me talking about it, so I definitely recommend doing that. But religion is also very heavily discussed in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and Stoppard's rejection of it very much aligns with that of existentialism and absurdism. Primarily, Sartre's view of God is that he is something we create to circumvent our complete free will, even though in this play it is suggested that we have none while Camus comments that God, or an afterlife, actually takes away from the meaning of life itself. As we see in The Outsider, Mousseau is a man of the world, and completely rejects religion, as it might even reduce the quality of our lives in living not for now, but for the sake of later, which is in contradiction with the qualities of the absurd man. There's a quote to me that outlines the wishful thinking that one might attribute to the belief in God, and it goes... A man sees a unicorn cross his path and disappear. That in itself is startling, but there are precedents for mystical encounters of various kinds, or to be less extreme, a choice of persuasions to put it down to fancy, until, my God, says the second man, I must be dreaming, I thought I saw a unicorn, at which point a dimension is added that makes the experience as alarming as it will ever be. A third witness, you understand, adds no further dimension but only spreads it thinner, and a fourth thinner still, and the more witnesses there are, the thinner it gets and the more reasonable it becomes until it has, is as thin as reality, the name we give to the common experience. Look, look, recites the crowd, a horse with an arrow in its forehead. It must have been mistaken for a deer. Sorry it wasn't a unicorn. It would have been nice to have unicorns. We see here sort of a criticism of what we interpret as the truth, and that's almost a reflection of the pragmatist view of truth, in that if something is useful to us, we ought to believe in it. Just like when Guildenstern remarks that in fact unicorns, or what I think is a metaphor for God here, are pleasant to believe in. But there's a realisation involved in this, that this very well might not be true, and this begins the wave of atheistic doubt that accompanies the rest of the play. Again, we see a comment on how subjective truth actually is in terms of religion when Guildenstern asks the player, whom we will talk about a little bit more in detail later, what exactly he and Rosencrantz are supposed to do to help Hamlet. But for God's sake, what are we supposed to do? Relax, respond, that's what people do. You can't go through life questioning your situation at every turn. But we don't know what's going on or what to do with ourselves. We don't know how to act. Act natural. You know why you're here at least. We only know what we're told and that's little enough. 
And for all we know, it isn't even true. For all everyone knows, nothing is. Everything has to be taken on trust. Truth is only that which is taken to be true. It's the currency of living. There may be nothing behind it, but it doesn't make any difference so long as it is honoured. One acts on assumptions. Truth here is only regarded as what is helpful, and that is not satisfactory enough. In fact, Stoppard almost mimics Camus' assertion that we are born with the only natural inclination to attempt to find purpose in life through Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's sheer confusion throughout the play as they try to find any semblance of an objective, concrete truth regarding the existence of God or of their own purpose. Of course, they get no distinct answers to this, and that is reflected through the excessive use of questions in the play. An example of such being, Why? Ah, why? Exactly. Exactly what? Exactly why? Exactly why what? What? Why? Why what exactly? Why is he mad? I don't know. The two are trying to fulfil their task of finding out why exactly Hamlet has gone mad as their only purpose being given to them by the king. But I think this sort of endless question is indicative of the lack of certainty that we will ever get regarding our purpose or God. We are left merely to make assumptions. It's sort of like feeling blindly for something that is invisible. The ineffability of this is the true tragedy of this play. The two constantly expect to find something through their blundering. And this is particularly evident when Guildenstern asks, what did you expect? To which Rosencrantz responds, something, someone, nothing. I think the reduction of this line from the juxtaposing something to nothing really illustrates the loss of hope in attempting to make sense of the world. Although, unlike what you might expect from an absurdist text, this doesn't grant any sense of clarity in appreciating the absurd, but really puts the two into a state of despair. They can only ever run on unconfirmed assumptions, which are ultimately meaningless, as there is no one to respond to them. The two constantly desire for there to be any sign of divinity, as they did initially with the coin toss. Instead, they see they are met with the world's lack of purpose, and their response to this is somewhat similar to the problem of evil. It could have been, it didn't have to be obscene. It could have been a bird out of season, dropping bright feathered on my shoulder. It could have been a tongueless dwarf standing by the road to point the way. I was prepared, but it's this, isn't it? No enigma, no dignity, nothing classical, portentous, only this, a comic pornographer and a rabble of prostitutes. I think Stoppard is really successful in criticising religion, as God's omnibenevolence can't possibly be reconciled with his lack of response to our many questions. We are left in a world with no resonance of purpose, and in fact filled with moral evil and we are limited only to the truth that we are told without any possibility of verifying it. I think what's so especially interesting about this is how similar of a point Kierkegaard makes in one of his writings called Repetition, where he also seems to complain about how we are put into the world with no direction, no instruction, and with no choice whether we want to exist or not. Kierkegaard writes, Who am I? How did I get into the world? Why was I not asked about it? Why was I not informed of the rules and regulations, but just thrust into the ranks as if I had been brought from a peddling Shanghai of human beings? How did I get involved in this big enterprise called actuality? Why should I be involved? Isn't it a matter of choice? And if I am compelled to be involved, where is the manager? I have something to say about this. 
Is there no manager? To whom shall I make my complaint? After all, life is a debate. May I ask that my observations be considered? If one has to take life as it is, would it not be best to find out how things go? Kierkegaard perfectly sums up the struggles of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in trying to navigate a very meaningless existence, and even being forced to through simply existing. There's a shared notion of the injustice of being created simply to serve an unanswerable and ultimately meaningless quest. Guildenstern remarks, We have not been picked out simply to be abandoned, set loose to find our own way. We are entitled to some direction, I would have thought. This absence of God really effectively feeds into the play's insecurity surrounding Telos and the lack of it particularly through an absurdist or nihilist lens. Again, Stoppard really effectively employs a motif of confusion and uncertainty through the myriad of questions within the play. Fearful lest we come too late. Too late for what? How do I know? We haven't got there yet. Then what are we doing here, I ask myself. You might well ask. You better get on. You might well think. Without much conviction, you better get on. Right. On where? Forward. Ah, which way do we? Which way did we? This comedic use of repetition here only emphasises how the two can only depend on each other, who were equally as clueless as anyone else, on what progressing in life actually is, with no definite assertion of a purpose. How can we possibly rank ourselves against each other when the only true sign of development in life is age? And this is such a great segue into Stoppard's exploration of life and death within the play, through the semantic field of movement and direction. This is evident, first of all, when Rosencrantz asks the player where they are and the response is simply travelling. The ambiguity of the answer truly shows how little we have to go off in terms of what we are to do in life. Accompanying this metaphor of travel is the repeated use of boats as a comparison to the nature of life itself, which is constantly moving in a single direction. Stoppard makes the point of explaining that regardless of what we do in the meantime, if we were to run around on a boat, to sleep or to eat, it still keeps moving as life does through the single measure of time. Yes, I'm very fond of boats myself. I like the way they're contained. You don't have to worry about which way to go or whether to go at all. The question doesn't arise because you're on a boat, aren't you? Boats are safe areas in the game of tag. The players will hold their positions until the music starts. I think I'll spend most of my life on boats. One is free on a boat for a time, relatively. This is reminiscent of the quote about life being like perpetual childhood in that we are simply led, especially combining this with the concept of no free will. And again, this is repeated in one of the last moments of the play. Where we went wrong was getting on a boat. We can move, of course, change direction, rattle about, but our movement is contained within a larger one that carries us along as inexorably as the wind and current. They had it in for us, didn't they? Right from the beginning. Who'd have thought that we were so important? But why? Was it all for this? Who are we that so much should converge on our little deaths? I love this place so much, as it incredibly effectively shows to us our own fear of death and our condemnation to it, which is in line with absurdism's focus on the awareness of mortality. There is a distinction, though, in my opinion, 
between Stoppard's depiction of death and an absurdist view of it, as the play presents no hope and is completely pessimistic in the outcome of life as leading to a single end, as we know from Shakespeare's actual Hamlet. Nothing really matters, which again contributes to the play's ultimate tragedy. Speaking of death, Stoppard presents a very atheistic view of it, which brings even more despair to the play. His use of metaphors is so, so, so interesting as he manages to entwine the plot with a deeper image or message. For example, towards the end of the play, as we know from the plot of Hamlet, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are on a boat to England with Hamlet under the instruction of Claudius. That is their single purpose at the end, to get to England. And even then, they are given a letter to hand to the king, which is sealed, and they know nothing about. Of course, we know that it is a letter requesting Hamlet's execution, which becomes swapped out for one requesting their execution by Hamlet himself. So there's a bit of dramatic irony even in this and with the title of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. They're being brought to their deaths in England. To me, though, Stoppard's use of England gains the symbolism of heaven itself. We can see this in their contemplation. We're just not getting anywhere. Not even England. I don't believe in it anyway. What? England. Just a conspiracy of cartographers, you mean? I mean, I don't believe it. I have no image. I try to picture us arriving, a little harbour perhaps, roads, inhabitants to point the way, horses on the road, riding for a day or a fortnight, and then a palace to the English king. That would be the logical kind of thing. But my mind remains a blank. No, we're slipping off the map. Yes, yes, but you don't believe in anything till it happens. And it has all happened, hasn't it? We drift down time, clutching at straws. But what good's a brick to a drowning man? We don't give up. We can't be long now. We might as well be dead. Do you think death could possibly be a boat? No, no, no. Death is... not. Death isn't. You take by meaning. Death is the ultimate negative. Not being. You can't not be on a boat. England is very much the final destination, but with the play's rejection of God, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are left with no hope for the afterlife. Again, the metaphor of travel is so poignant here, as just as absurdism indicates, we can only grasp what is human understanding, that by nature is growing old. We can never seem to understand when our travelling or life will end, and what will come after. It's the not-being that I find so interesting, as it is a concept that to despair over in not being able to comprehend. Stoppard uses this almost oxymoronic language to describe how he views death and the lack of an afterlife, which we see in one of Rosencrantz's soliloquies. I mean, one thinks of it like being alive in a box. One keeps forgetting to take into account the fact that one is dead, which should make a difference, shouldn't it? I mean, you'd never know you were in a box, would you? It would be just like being asleep in a box. Not that I'd like to sleep in a box, mind you. Not without any air. You'd wake up dead, for a start, and then where would you be? Apart from inside a box. That's the bit I don't like, frankly. That's why I don't think of it. Stoppard depicts our inability to comprehend the state of an existence. Perhaps this explains how we come to create religion as a result of wishful thinking and to alleviate the struggle of not being able to comprehend 
that there is not anything and we are nothing after death. He often compares it to trying to remember ourselves before we are born, which is another conversation point that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are caught up by, because how can we possibly remember something before being able to remember? And equally, how can we remember something after being able to remember? This is where I think Stoppard diverges from the ultimate moral of absurdism being that of embracing death. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern aren't so much lost because they aren't aware of their mortality, but very much the other way round. Their knowledge of their deaths, which is in itself contained in the title of the play, actually causes them despair. Perhaps Stoppard is trying to say that it is better not to think about it at all, as we are on a boat that will one day reach its destination, and there is no escaping that. Simply, it might be better off to live in blissful ignorance as opposed to embracing the absurd. This is also not the only instance of Stoppard's seemingly anti-absurdist message, which we can see prominently through the play's inclusion of theatre, which is one of Camus' big focuses in the myth of Sisyphus. Camus believes that an actor is the pinnacle of the absurd man, as he can increase his quality of life through living through numerous different experiences on stage, ultimately dying at the end of them. Through the simulation of death, the actor gains an acceptance of his own morality, but also bolsters his understanding of what it is to appreciate life to its fullest and the absurd. Stoppard challenges this at the end of the play through Guildenstern, who tells the player, who is hired out to act in Hamlet's dumb show, that acting is not enough to emulate the reality of death. Dying is not romantic, and death is not a game which will soon be over. Death is not anything. Death is not. It's the absence of presence. Nothing more. The endless time of never coming back. A gap you can't see. As I said earlier, the use of negation is oxymoronic here, but it is used to emphasise the fact that, at the end of the day, an actor can get up and do another performance. A person can't. Hence reaching the conclusion that actors are the opposite of people. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this organised ramble in my quest for anything to put on my personal statement. The bell jar will be soon, but I think it would be nice for me to cover some more of my own interests before we get into that. At this point, I can't tell you what's going to be next, so I hope whatever happens will be enjoyable enough for a next episode.